Turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, we'll read uh, the first 11 verses of this book this morning. Hear God's holy and foul word uh, from the book of Acts. I'm supposed to start my recorder. Give me a second. Verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the days when he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. And we'll end our reading there this morning. Well, we begin a new series this morning uh, through the book of Acts. And we'll, we'll be at this for a while, as you might guess, given the length of this, this book. Probably uh, divided up a couple times with, with some other series as we go uh, as well. But these 11 verses this morning are something of an introduction to the rest of the book. There's something of a a table of contents here for the book of Acts and foundational things for the story that Luke is going to tell. And so uh, in in the first part in your outline there this morning, I want to look at these verses as an introduction, uh, be introduced to this this book ourselves, some of its themes and purposes that we will uh, be studying uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, And then the second part, I want to focus particularly on the ascension. Of Jesus and its importance for you, for the church. So, uh, under this first heading, uh, four things that I want us to look at as we uh, are introduced to the book of Acts and think about some of the themes that, that Luke lays out here for us. Uh, if you look at the, verse, the, the first line uh, first again, where Luke says, The first account I composed, Theophilus. And what's evident there is that this is a, a second volume. And the, the, the first volume, of course, was the Gospel of Luke. Uh, both of these books in the New Testament are addressed to this guy named Theophilus, uh, who we know really nothing about. There's just these two mentions. These two books are addressed to him. He's, it's supposed that perhaps he's a, a new believer, uh, and Luke was uh, giving him a careful account to, to add to his, his certainty uh, about the ministry uh, of Jesus and his death and resurrection 
Here's how the book of Luke begins. He has a little bit longer introduction to Theophilus. He says, Inasmuch as many have taken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, Luke says, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Uh, So that's how Luke uh, addresses both these volumes. Um, Nowhere actually is is Luke named uh, in Luke or in uh, the book of Acts, Uh, but the consistent witness of church history and the early church is that that these are composed by Luke, uh, and they they clearly go together. Um, Now, if if you were asked, and sometimes when Christians are asked this question, this trivia, piece of trivia, who wrote most of the New Testament, more than anyone else of the New Testament? Most people quickly answer Paul. Paul wrote 13, maybe 14 books of the New Testament. Seems like a good answer, but the the biggest author of our New Testament is actually Luke. Uh, Luke wrote almost 30% of the New Testament. Um, one project, two volumes, and we get to look at the second of those here. And one of the things that, that one of the first things that Luke jumps right into, uh, secondly on your outline there, letter B, uh, is the power promised to the disciples. Uh, the power promised to them. Look at verses 4 and 5 again, where Jesus commands them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father has promised, uh, which you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, they're commanded to stay where they are, not to leave Jerusalem. They, they might have been inclined, to many of them, to go back to Galilee. Uh, that's where some of them were from. That's where they minister with Jesus. They probably face less opposition. It's probably be safer to leave Jerusalem for them. Uh, but they're to stay and wait for this promise of the Father. Of course, Jesus is speaking of, of the Holy Spirit. Uh, John 14, for example, Jesus had said, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, And we could look also to the uh, promises in Isaiah and Joel and elsewhere in the Old Testament of a a pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, one day. Um, And this all, of course, anticipates the story of chapter 2 and Pentecost. And, And so we'll talk about that in more Uh, depth when we come to chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit, not a coming as if the Holy Spirit had not been there before at work in his people always, uh, but a new pouring out of the Spirit for for the spread of the gospel uh, to the world. So this will be a big theme in the book of Acts, the the powerful activity and and equipping of the Holy Spirit for the church. I think Acts will maybe challenge at least some of us to be more mindful of the work of the Spirit um, Acts will raise questions as to how the, the Holy Spirit worked then uh, versus now, perhaps, and, and we'll take those up as, as they come, as appropriate. Um, but I, I hope a main application for us through the studying of this book will be uh, assurance that the Holy Spirit is uh, powerfully at work uh, in and through his church still. That brings us to the next point, letter C, uh, that the chief purpose of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit was this call to witness, this call to the disciples and and to the whole church to witness. Look at verse 8, and Jesus makes that connection. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and, and, and really the sense is, so that you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Um, it, it's interesting to note, given the rest of the book of Acts, the rest of the story here, that the, the apostles almost certainly heard that statement of Jesus at this point in terms of sharing the gospel with the Jews. They were to go and, and tell the Jews that were spread around Judea and even to the ends of the known earth uh, that the Messiah had come. We get deep into the story of Acts and, and Peter himself still doesn't understand that, that that includes the Gentiles. So certainly at this point, that, that's, that's what they're thinking. Uh, it's interesting to, to recognize that. Um, and, and, but this provides something of a, a outline. It's been pointed out many times before uh, for the rest of the book. Uh, witnesses in Jerusalem, that's the first several chapters of Acts. Uh, in all Judea and Samaria, uh, that's the next several chapters in Acts, the middle part of Acts. Uh, and then to the ends of the earth, we have Paul's missionary journeys and, and even uh, to Rome uh, and thinking about the, the gospel going uh, across the known world. Um, that, that's something of an outline. Uh, but, but these 11 apostles, uh, they will be 12. When we come to the, the, the rest of chapter uh, 1, they'll choose someone to replace Judas. Uh, so these, these 12 men uh, will in some way, uniquely be witnesses. Witnesses is a, a courtroom word. It means testifying to what you have seen, what you've heard, uh, what you know from firsthand experience. And, and so there's a sense in which these 12 were uniquely over against, uh, say, our witness, uh, which is a, a part of who we are as, as Christians, as the church. Their, their, uni- their witness was unique uh, in that they were eyewitnesses. We'll see that in the rest of the chapter in coming weeks, that the main criterion for choosing this 12th apostle to replace Jesus was that it was someone who was with Jesus from the beginning and witnessed his ministry and especially his resurrection uh, so that they could witness to that uh, in that way. And, and the Holy Spirit would empower these men and give them authority in unique ways that, that would not be repeated perpetually uh, to lead the church and to proclaim the gospel. But there is, there is a lot here that's not unique uh, that still marks the church today, as we'll see as we go through this study. Um, we are witnesses to Jesus as well. The, the church as a whole is to be a witness to Jesus. Uh, and that's really, I, I think we can speak of that as, as the main mission of the church. Um, some churches will emphasize as, as greatest priority, as greatest mission, something like um, you know, in, incarnating the presence of Jesus in our communities or extending the mercy ministry of Jesus to the poor and so on, transforming the culture. Those are all wonderful things for the church to be engaged in. And, and they, they flow out of who we are as Christians serving Christ. But I think we can say, biblically, the chief mission of the church remains. Uh, what it was at, at the Great Commission, as Jesus commissioned his church and, at the end of the Gospels, and what it is here at the beginning of the book of Acts, which is to point to Jesus. It's not primarily something that, that we accomplish, that we transform, that we do, but it's primarily and first pointing to what Jesus has done, what he is doing. Uh, he is the one who saves. Uh, he's the one who reconciles to God, forgives sins. He is the one who heals. He's the one who will come uh, and, and transform and set all things right. And so the Holy Spirit still empowers the church for, for bold, effective witness through the simplicity of the gospel. 
uh, through what Paul called the, the foolishness of the gospel. Fourthly, uh, this introduction here points us to the theme of the ministry and the reign of Jesus. Uh, look, look at another theme points, uh, that Luke points us to in this, in this introduction. What, what was it that, that Luke says Jesus uh, was teaching his disciples about between the resurrection and the ascension? Uh, what was it he was teaching and what were the disciples asking him about? Uh, look at verse 3. It says he was speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Uh, that's how Luke summarizes. He was, he was talking about the kingdom of God. And then when he gives us an example of what the disciples were curious about, verse 6, is that at this time you are restoring the kingdom. So the kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is, is how the book of Acts will end in the very last verse. Paul, we, we leave off with Paul in the very end of Acts, teaching about the kingdom. Uh, so the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. This is how the Gospels summarize Jesus' preaching over and over again. He went around preaching the kingdom of God. Uh, Now, the disciples here are are still somewhat focused on the kingdom as a political idea, something for the the, the nation of Israel to get back to, to uh, recover. Uh, But Jesus is eager for them to see the kingdom pushing forward, growing. Um, That it's something far greater than, than little national Israel. Um, the kingdom is, is, a, is a big and important uh, concept in the New Testament, especially the Gospels uh, and Acts. And the kingdom of God is, is not just, um, you know, everything. God, God is sovereign over all things. That's absolutely true. Uh, but but the, the concept of the kingdom of God in the New Testament could be summarized this way. It's, it's the sovereign saving rule of God. It's the sovereign saving rule of God. It's, again, not just God's sovereignty generally, which is true, but it's his acting to save, his bringing people into relationship with him, uh, conquering sin, forgiving their sin in that way, overcoming the curse. And so the kingdom is spoken of um, not, not just as a realm, but as, as something that you can come into or, or stay out of. Um, you can't avoid God's sovereignty, but, but the kingdom, this, this conquering grace of God is something that you come into um, or, or learn about um, or that come, come to, to submit to. And so Acts will be the ongoing story of the advance of the kingdom of God and the spread of the knowledge of God, the spread of the, the, the gracious rule of God over hearts um, across the nations. I want you to see um, another very interesting phrase related to this that Luke opens with. Look at verse 1 again, where Luke says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And I want to draw your attention particularly to the word began. It's interesting that he doesn't say that his gospel was, that's what Jesus did, and I'm going to tell you the story about the church. Uh, But it implies that the ascension did not end Jesus' ministry. He says, my, my first volume was about what Jesus began to do, and it implies that this volume, the book of Acts, uh, is going to be about Jesus now reigning from heaven, sending out his Holy Spirit. This is the story of his ongoing powerful ministry uh, as king. Um, the book of Acts uh, gets its name uh, from some of, some of the uh, most ancient manuscripts, copies of the book of Acts, um, it, was, it was added by copyists at the top, the Acts of the Apostles. And that's probably, uh, like my Bible, probably how it reads in your Bible. 
Again, it's not, not original, but... Um, and the apostles are important characters in some way in, in, in the book of Acts. Um, it's interesting to note, though, after chapter 1, where they're all named, uh, none of the apostles are named again except for John and Peter uh, in the rest of the story. Um, and that does fit with the fact that, that the far more important character in the book of Acts, as with the Bible, is, is God himself. Uh, that's, that's more the story that Luke is telling, what, what God is doing uh, through his apostles, through his church. Uh, but God is the main character. Some have suggested then that maybe a better title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and that would be appropriate. It's a significant theme. Uh, but I think Luke emphasizes even more than the role of the Holy Spirit, again, is the, the reign of Jesus and the work of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Lord Jesus and the Father. Um, so maybe a more, the most faithful title for Luke's purposes uh, would be the Acts of the Ascended Christ. Uh, the Acts of the Ascended Christ. I think that's a, that's a good summary of, of the story that Luke is telling. Well, that brings us to the, the final uh, piece, the second half that, that, that I want you to look at this morning, the other foundation of the book of Acts and the life of the ministry of the church, uh, even to today, uh, and that is the Ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus. So look at, verse, uh, look at Luke's account again of it, verses 9 to 11. Uh, after he'd said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go. Into heaven, uh, I would suggest that the Jesus ascension perhaps doesn't receive as much attention in our, our thinking, our teaching, um, as as it should. Um, it, it seems like that wasn't always the case uh, in in the church, uh, in in the earlier church at earlier times in church history. Um, it was certainly more of an emphasis um, in the thinking and the writing of the church. Uh, that's reflected in the Apostles' Creed, for example. Here's what the Apostles' Creed says about the ascension. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I just point out, that's, that's two out of 12 statements in the Apostles' Creed. So one-sixth of the Apostles' Creed has to do with the ascension and the reign of Christ. Um, in John chapter 16... Uh, Jesus had told his church, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's the advantage of the church that he would, he would ascend to heaven. So I want to spend a few minutes here thinking about what, what is that advantage? Uh, what is the significance of the ascension uh, for Christ and, and for the church? And we won't look at all the pieces of uh, these verses here in, in detail. This will be somewhat topical, but I want us to think about that as a foundation for the story that Luke is telling. Uh, so, five, five points briefly. Uh, the first purpose of the ascension uh, is to accomplish vindication. Uh, and I mean the vindication of Jesus himself. Uh, the vindication of Jesus. The world had seen him come in humility, in gentleness, in lowliness, in, in humiliation, really. Um, but his work was now finished in suffering and death, and it was necessary, as the scriptures tell us, that he be glorified again. That he returned to heaven the worship of angels, the glory that he previously had with the Father and the Spirit. 
Uh, so Jesus is vindicated in his, his own words, his claims about who he was. Uh, in, in Luke chapter 22, he said, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Um, and, and this is what his ascension is. And over and over, the New Testament writers refer to Jesus as seated at the right hand of God. Um, reigning in glory in heaven. Hebrews 2 puts it this way. He's crowned with glory and honor. And of course, his, his ascension anticipates his ultimate vindication uh, when he comes again visibly as king and judge uh, for all the world to see uh, and to set things right. So it's for Jesus' vindication. Secondly, uh, for an appeal to the Father. An appeal to the Father. That is, the New Testament is clear that Jesus having ascended to to heaven, is now interceding for us. He's praying for you. Um, He's bringing your persons, your needs, before the throne of grace uh, daily um, as your mediator and priest. Romans 8, 34 says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. Uh, He's praying for us. Hebrews 7 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Hebrews 9 says he appears in the presence of God on your behalf. Um, So we have perfect confidence. We have have greater confidence because of Jesus' ascension, not only of being being saved ultimately, but that your your prayers are heard. Uh, Jesus is, is praying for you, with you. Uh, at the throne of grace. Um, sadly, that doctrine has been neglected, twisted, treated as, as inadequate uh, at times in the history of the church or by various people. I, I became aware just several years ago that there are, there are dozens of, of organizations or, or individuals running businesses um, who advertise they will take your emailed prayers to the Western Wall in Jerusalem. So here's just one example of that. Here, here's an example of an advertisement for that. Uh, This guy says, I'll personally place your prayers in the Western Wall in Jerusalem and show it to you. He'll he'll snap a picture for you. Your prayers are confidential, he says. I'll print them together with your name and place them in the most sacred place on earth where Jesus himself used to pray. That's the part that caught my attention, where Jesus used to pray. Well, think about the blessing of, of the ascension, that you can pray to Jesus now where he prays now. Daily, not where he used to pray, but where he prays now. Uh, of course, other traditions have prayed to saints or to Mary, and there, there are doctrines built around that that, that um, imagine that that in, enhances uh, our, our standing before God and his hearing our prayers. Um, again, that's, that's contrary to the idea, the, the blessing that we have, that praying the name of Jesus, knowing that he is praying uh, at the throne of grace uh, for you. Thirdly, letter C. Uh, the ascension is to assure you, to assure you, his people, of, of your own resurrection, of your own place in heaven one day. Uh, John 14, Jesus said this In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to re- prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The way Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 is that we are, because Jesus, we are united to Jesus and he is in heaven. Uh, We are seated in heaven with him now, already. Um, The Heidelberg Catechism reflects on this in this way. 
It says, we have our flesh in heaven. That is Jesus. There, there is resurrected human flesh in heaven. We have our flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that he, our head, will also take us, his members, to himself. Uh, and John Calvin reflects on this in this way. Since he entered heaven in our flesh, it follows that in a sense we already, Ephesians 2, sit with God in the heavenly places in him, so that we do not await heaven with a bare hope, but in Christ we already possess it. And fourthly, letter D, uh, Jesus' ascension uh, was his acceding to the throne. Acceding to the throne. Jesus was exalted to the position of king of kings uh, in ascending. Because of his obedience to death, he was exalted to the throne over the whole earth. And, and Peter will emphasize this in his sermon in, in chapter 2. And we'll think about it more when we come there. But, but Peter describes Jesus as exalted to the right hand of God. He goes on to quote Psalm 110 about the Father appointing Jesus to, to that position of authority. And he concludes, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Now, how should we understand the idea of, of Jesus being made Lord and Christ or becoming king? Um, that may sound contradictory. Uh, Jesus Is Jesus not king because he is God uh, already? Uh, God has always been king. He's always been sovereign. But the New Testament says something, something more. There's something new. Uh, with Jesus in his resurrection and his ascension. In his humanity, as, as Savior and Redeemer, as, as the God-man Savior, Jesus has been appointed king, uh, not only over the church, but over the whole world, over everyone, over all nations. Uh, so Ephesians 1, Paul says, The Father seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 3 says of Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So it's absolutely true that Jesus, as, as the Son of God, was sovereign before the incarnation, uh, but his, his human nature, as, as the Messiah, as the God-man, he was not yet exalted or glorified. And so, just as we have human political rulers in our world, uh, so Jesus is a human political ruler. He, he is actually and really appointed as king and judge uh, over all political rulers, all nations in the world. And again, many understand him to be king and mediator over the, over the church in that sense. Uh, but, but I think the New Testament is clear that, that he, the whole Bible, really, that he is mediator over all. That, that everyone in the world, whether they understand it or not, and obviously many, many don't, uh, but that they owe allegiance to Jesus. That it's, it's through King Jesus, as mediator king, that God governs the whole world. Psalm, Psalm 22, for example... Psalm 22 looks forward to God becoming governor of the nations one day, even though God is, is king. Psalm 72 speaks of a, a, a king, a divine king in the line of David, who one day will have dominion from sea to sea to the ends of the earth. Again, God was already sovereign, but, but there's this anticipation uh, of a king. Ephesians 1 says he is now head of all things. Um, 
Again, we'll think more about this in chapter 2 as well, but what are, what are some of the implications of the fact that Jesus has ascended to the throne as King of kings, as Lord of lords? Um, well, one implication is, again, that all people on earth are accountable to Jesus, are, are called to serve him. And, and given the biblical data, we might say especially that is true of, of rulers in the world. Uh, Psalm, Psalm 2, for example, is, is key there. Psalm 2 uh, pictures the rulers of the world standing against God, shaking their fists at God, as it were. And how does God respond, if, if you know Psalm 2? He laughs first, and then he says, I have put my Messiah on the throne. He anticipates the, the ascension of Jesus to the throne. And then he warns all the rulers of the world to serve his king that he's appointed. So rulers, authorities, nations even are called to, to serve King Jesus. Not just sort of people in their private lives, but even rulers in, in their authority, in their capacity as rulers over nations. So the king of Saudi Arabia, the prime minister of London, the supreme leader of Iran, the president of the United States, the judges of our courts, and so on, the mayor of Longmont, all of them, whether they know it or not or acknowledge it or not, are under the rule of Christ for his glory. And this, this doctrine is not to bring the church and the state together and, and mix them, but to bring both in their, in their spheres under the lordship of Christ for his glory. Um, all businesses, institutions are, are under Christ and, and serve him. Again, whether they do that or know that or not. Um, a further implication for believers, then, is, is confidence that we do not live anywhere in the world or, or share the gospel of this king anywhere in the world that's not under the rule of Christ for his sake. Uh, there's no ruler that we serve or judge or mayor or, or anyone in the world that we could serve who is not under the rule of Christ. Uh, it's, it's a great uh, confidence for us as believers. Well, with, with that in mind, then the final point, the final significance of the ascension uh, is to advance the gospel, to advance the gospel. Uh, in his ascension, Jesus is, is ruling over the earth for the sake of the church and building his church. Um, we can have absolute confidence in the success, the advance of the gospel uh, through our witness uh, because of that. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And, and there are various ways that Jesus can and does oppose his enemies and drive back evil. But every conversion to faith in Christ uh, over the last 2,000 years and, and ongoingly is an example of the kingdom of Satan being defeated uh, and Christ's, Christ's uh, kingdom advancing. Uh, in, our, in our adult class, we've begun studying church history again. We've been doing that for a while off and on. We're, we're Coming into the modern era, getting closer to uh, the end of church history, the, the end so far, up to 2023. Um, and interestingly, now in our, in our worship services, we're going back to the beginning of church history, uh, the, of the New Testament church, uh, in a sense. And church history, while it includes many ups and downs and weaknesses and failures uh, of the church, is overall the story of Jesus smashing the gates of hell uh, and advancing his kingdom. Uh, calling millions of people from all over the world uh, into to gracious relationship with God. 
um, winning victory through uh, weak and inconsequential people like us, right, through his gospel, uh, by his spirit. So that's the story that we'll trace through this book. Uh, I look forward to that study, and, and we pray that God would bless it to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to uh, study this account of the acts of the risen Christ in caring for and advancing his church uh, against uh, much opposition and without uh, worldly tools of power. Uh, we pray that you would teach us and encourage us and challenge us as the, as, as the church as we uh, study this book. Uh, this morning we pray that we would um, know and rejoice in uh, the, the ascension of Christ and all that it means for us uh, and for uh, your sovereignty over history uh, and ruling the world through Christ, our King. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.